Good morning. Good morning. Glad you're here today. And uh, if you remember, at the beginning of the year, we started a series called Change. And we encourage people to look at making some changes uh, in their life, uh, both fitness and food, uh, to make some changes with our faith that we grow closer to God, our friendship, uh, to be able to grow and focus. And then from that, we actually developed a change blog uh, in which you can go on and you can share with us and kind of encourage all of us some of the changes that you've made. And so I want to invite you to do that uh, if you haven't yet. And the way that you do that is you'll go to our website, uh, thejar.org, and then if you just scroll down, you'll uh, come to this place that says, check out our change blog. Just click on that. And then if you go to the left, if you go all the way down to the very last uh, little box there, it says, my change, and you click on that. And then you can leave a comment, and there's different comments that uh, you can do. Uh, and you can see different people have listed those. You just give your first name. Uh, you can make up an alias name, I guess, if you really don't want people to know what some of the changes you have done are. Uh, but this week, I did one. And uh, if you go down all the way to the bottom, uh, you'll see I made one. I asked our small group as we ended the series... How much weight uh, in the fitness goal have we lost? And so as a group, we lost 94 pounds. Now, some people, thank you, that's not me, but that's our group. Thank you. None of them are here, so you can clap for me. No, I'm joking. Um, I only lost two pounds, but we had some people in our group that lost 20 pounds. And what I want to encourage you is that in your small groups that you would get together and you'd say, hey, what are some of the changes that we've made? And to let us know what those are. Or to uh, go ahead and what are some of the changes with friendships or focus in your life. Whatever it is and to share it with us. So that we continue this concept of change. Not just during the series, um, but throughout the entire year. Deal? That didn't sound very encouraging. Deal? Okay. Alright. Now... We're going to jump into our teaching, but before we get right into it, I want us to take a little quiz today. It's spring break for our students, but for the adults, you're taking a quiz. And uh, the quiz is not hard. Uh, There are no wrong answers, so don't freak out. But here's the first uh, part of the quiz. How many of you, because basically what this quiz is trying to find out, is how many rebels do we have in the jar? Okay? How many of you have ever been rebellious? Okay, so here's the first question for the quiz. How many of you hid your vegetables or you fed them to your dog when your parents said you had to clean your plate? Just raise your hand. Mass confession here. Okay, there's a few of us. I'm shocked that some of you would do that. I mean, I am. I'm I'm shocked. Okay, here's the second one. How many of you recall... Uh, reading in your bed with a flashlight when your parents said absolutely no flashlights. Look at this. We're getting better. More confession. There we go. Okay. How many of you ever blamed your brother or sister for doing something that you did and you got away with? Look at that. All right. How many of you ever 
took jello and put it into the fishbowl just to see what would happen. Okay, I guess I'm the only one. All right, now, let's go on to the next one. How many of you ever threw a rock and broke a window? Okay. Um, how many of you ever toilet papered another person's house? Okay. Wow, look at this. this is, some of, we have police officers here today. All right. How many of you ever egged another person's house? Okay. All right, last one. How many of you ever shot bottle rockets at cars as they were going by? Okay. All of you need help. I mean, you really, you really do. Well, I'm pretty sure that all of us have misbehaved as children or as teenagers. And some of us, honestly, you haven't stopped. I mean, the rebellion's just continued on. But do you remember what it was like when you knew that you had been caught? That you had to face your mom or your dad or a neighbor or a teacher? Do you remember how that felt? How you expected judgment? How you knew that you deserved to be punished by someone? The look on that person that you respected and the look of disappointment that they gave to you. You know, it's very natural to feel this way. It's a human response. It's called a guilt reflex. The only problem is, is that some of us go through life and we take the guilt and we add on to it more and more and more. And many times our guilt grows and it leads to something called shame. And it's very, very important to understand the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is an emotion for something that we've done. It'll come up on the side screens here. Guilt is an emotion for something that we've done. But shame is the emotion of who we think we are. You see, it kind of goes from this. It goes from the point of, I failed, which we all fail, and we might feel guilty about that, to I'm a failure. Or I've done a bad thing to shame, which says I'm a bad person. Shame is that experience when you're standing in a line waiting to be chosen for the kickball game and no one picks you. Shame is what you feel when you lie to someone and you take advantage of them and they never know it. Shame is the pregnant teenager who is afraid to tell her mom. Shame is the hardworking father who secretly pours over internet porn at night. Shame is the adult who was sexually abused as a child. Shame is the spouse who finds themselves attracted to someone else. You see, shame is the pain that we've all caused to others or ourselves, and the pain impacts us. But you've got to realize that shame is just a big lie. And if we're going to overcome shame, we've got to overthrow the lie which says this. This is who I am. I cannot change. 
I am unworthy of change. So from the drug addict to the white-collar thief, from the welfare cheater to the corporate embezzler, we can get locked into thinking that this is who I am and I simply can't change because of what I've done. I mean, I said something or I did something. Something in my past was so bad and I was wrong, maybe morally wrong. And now I'm just paralyzed and I think to myself, I can never, ever change. And unfortunately, sometimes we get so paralyzed that we become powerless. We accept the shame as a lifestyle and it drags us down and it poisons our mind and it spoils our soul. Until someone comes along and surprises us and awakens something in us, something that we didn't even know was there. Let's take a look at the side screen. All taxes must be paid in full! We're all Jews. Our own people working for drugs. Makes us sick. Collaborators. Let's move on. A stinking vermin. You should keep your distance from it. Two men. Went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. And the other one. tax collector. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, thieves, adulterers, or this tax collector. But the tax collector didn't even look up to heaven. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. God bless the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Anyone who praises himself will be humbled. And anyone who humbles himself will be praised. Matthew, come. Now he even calls the sinners to follow him. 
one has to wonder of the sins committed by his other followers. Tax collectors. There's not a thread of good in any of them. Thomas, Jesus has not come for the good, but for the sinners. He gives people a second chance. We should too. So here's the story. The story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now you might be wondering, well, what was a Pharisee? Well, in Jesus' day, Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They held kind of their religious club, like Bible beaters do today, over people's heads, constantly letting them know they weren't good enough, that they were the only ones who were righteous. And they said if you wanted to be holy, if you wanted to be close to God, you had to follow all the rules, all the regulations, all the rituals, 613 of them in all, many of which the Pharisees had kind of added on themselves. And they were looked upon in this culture as righteous, as the most moral people of the day. Now, tax collectors, on the other hand, were the most despised people that you could imagine. They were Jews, but what they had done was they had sold out to the Romans. And Rome couldn't collect all the taxes from all the people themselves. So they would hire these tax collectors to collect taxes. And what tax collectors were most known for is they would always ask for more taxes than Rome needed. And then they would pocket the rest of themselves. They were despised. Now last week we looked at uh, Jesus and his favorite title that he had for himself. Which, what was it? Do you remember? The Son of Man. This is the title that he chose for himself. It's the title that was to be given to the Messiah that was predicted 600 years before. And it refers to him having all of the power of divine, but also the power of humanity. You see, the Son of Man is not some distant title that you can't get close to, but it's a human title. And when Jesus used that, he said, I know what you're going through. That's why I'm the Son of Man. I've gone through everything that you have gone through. I've been in your shoes. I understand. The Son of Man means that Jesus is not out of touch, but He's very in touch with you and I. He knows what we're going through. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. He's able to identify with you. He's able to understand when you've had a tough day, when you go through sorrow, when you go through sadness. He knows what it's like when you've had joy and you've had success and you've gone through pleasure in your life. And he's approachable and he's available and he's amazing. But the religious leaders of Jesus's day, the Pharisees did not give him the title son of man. They were too jealous because he was pulling the crowd away from him. And so he gave 
or the Pharisees gave him this title, a friend of sinners. That's what they called him, a friend of sinners. I mean, throughout Jesus' ministry, he showed startling, maybe even scandalous kind of affection for the broken, the lowly, the outcast, the struggling, the sinful. In fact, one of the most common accusations against Jesus during his entire ministry that religious leaders hurled at him was given by the Pharisees, and the scripture later on says this, the Pharisees said, this man welcomed sinners and he eats with them. Now, in those days, in that culture, if you ate with someone, that was a big deal. It wasn't like today, you know, if you want to go eat with someone, you're like, hey, let's go get a burger at McDonald's. Or if you like them a lot, you might go, hey, let's go to Applebee's, you know. But you go, the food's pretty much prepared, you eat and you're done. But in those days, when there was no refrigeration, if you invited someone over to your house, it was a big deal. You had to prepare all the food and it took hours to get everything ready. So you just didn't invite anyone over. You just didn't say, hey, let's go get something to eat. You invited the people that you respected, the people that you trusted, the people that you would call your friends. And Jesus broke bread with people, though, folks. That you wouldn't want to be their friend. People who rejected. People who were abandoned by their family. People who were the losers of the culture. And when his critics, his leaders, saw him having meals with people like that, this is what they said. Here is a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, folks, Jesus was not just this little baby Jesus that we all love. And then he became the Jesus that everyone likes. Jesus was scandalous to his culture. He turned things upside down. He chose the outcasts, the rejects, the nobodies of society. And he said, hey, why don't you come and you follow me? And in our story today, he chooses... A tax-collecting thief over a righteous Pharisee. And he paints a picture of how they pray. Let's look at this and read it together. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee a religious person, a Bible thumper, and the other, a tax collector, a thief. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, when Jesus tells the story, he couldn't have picked a bigger contrast in the culture. I mean, on one hand... 
It would be like, on one hand, you have Billy Graham. And on the other hand, you have Donald Trump. I mean, that's the kind of difference that you see. You've got a Pharisee, a religious person, the most religious of all. And then you have this tax collector. So we've watched the story. We've read the story. What do we get from the story? What do we learn of how we can draw closer to Christ? And the first thing that we learn in this story is this. I must resist comparisons. I must resist comparisons. Verse 11, again, the Pharisee or is de- depicted this way. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Folks, every single one of us, children, teenagers, adults, we want to feel valuable. We want to feel like we're worth something, that we count. But the problem is, is that many times we fall into the temptation of saying that I'm not enough. And the reason I'm not enough is because when I compare myself with someone else, when when I compare myself to another person, then all of a sudden my value goes down because I'm not as valuable. I'm not as good as some other people. Now, this isn't in your notes, but if you want to write it down, you can. But I just want to give you three quick suggestions of how to overcome the temptation of comparison. The first one's this. You just got to stop doing it. You got to stop comparing yourself to others. You just got to stop. You know, Nike has this phrase, just do it. You need a phrase when it comes to comparison. Just don't do it. Just don't compare. And this is what I've learned about this whole comparison deal. Often, if you get up close with the person that you're comparing to that you don't think you quite add up to, what you find out in their story is that you find out their life isn't as wonderful as you thought it actually was to begin with. And you find out that they struggle with things that they hide really well, but they struggle with some deep stuff. It's like I tell people all the time. You know, you can look on the outside of a beautiful house and you can say, oh man, that must be a wonderful family. Everything must be great. The yard's kept up nice. The house looks nice. Everything looks nice. But you go inside that house, folks, and you'll find out what's real. And we have no idea. What goes on? And yet we're comparing ourselves to people. Another way to deal with comparison is this. You reaffirm your own uniqueness and your choices. You reaffirm your own uniqueness and choices. You know, one of the things that uh, I've been tempted to compare myself to is uh, two sides of friends that we have. Jen and I didn't have children until later in life. We'd been married 13 years. And so now we're in our 40s, but we have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Most of our friends that are our age, their kids are in high school and they're like, four more years and we're done. You know, I'm like, four more years. No, 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 I'm not even close to that. And then we got friends on the other side who have kids that are our age, but their life experience is so different. And sometimes they'll start talking about cultural stuff. And Jen and I look at each other and we're like, we have no clue. 
Lady Goo Goo, who's that? You know? And then all of a sudden I got to find out. Lady Gaga, oh, this is kind of important. We probably should know this. Some of you are like, you're going to leave today. Lady Gaga is important. That's the only thing I got from the pastor today. No, no, no. But I'm tempted sometimes. And then I have to decide, you know what? I made a choice to do a lot of stuff and enjoy a lot of life early on. And now I get the choice to have the joy of having kids when I don't have to struggle like some younger parents do. That's my choice. Folks, each of us need to recognize that we are created and we make choices and God is present. And you need to be affirmed that you are special. Your DNA, folks, is the only type of DNA there is in this world. No one else holds exactly the way that you are. You're unique. You're special. You're a Rembrandt. You're a Monet. You're a one of a kind. Now, for some of you, we're glad there's only one. But we're, you know, you are one of a kind. And so when you begin to feel that you're comparing yourself to other people, you simply need to reaffirm, I am, I'm one of a kind. And God's chosen me in this particular situation with these circumstances to do these things. Last suggestion. Stop hiding and start talking. Stop hiding and start talking. One of the things I find in the church is that you would never admit it, but you have a tendency to compare yourself to other people in the church. Well, we're not as good of parents as so-and-so. Our kids don't behave as well as so-and-so. I don't read my Bible as much as that person. Oh, that person seems like they have it all together. And what I'd encourage you to do is just to go and talk to the person and try to Get rid of the comparison. Bring the secret to the light. And see if you can work together to try to squelch the envy, the comparison, and avoid the breakdown that's in the community. And chances are, this is what I found. When you do that, when you bring it to light, and you go, you know, I've got this comparing spirit right now. I'm just feeling this way. And usually what people go, oh my God, I have the same thing towards you. And people have a tendency then to go, hey, let's bring it to light. Let's get it out so that we don't hold on to. Folks, when you walk down the comparison pathway, it always leads to a road of destruction. A road that's unhealthy. We see it with the Pharisee. When you find in your attitude, your thoughts, your thinking, that you begin to start constantly Having things like you're pointing towards other people. Either you compare yourself and you go, oh my gosh, they're so much better than I am. Or you compare yourself and you go, oh, I'm so much worse than they are. When you do that kind of thing, when you all of a sudden are like, well, at least I'm not like him. I might be a bad person, but I'm not as bad as, you know, Derek. And the reason we say things like this is because... We think it makes us feel better, but it never does. Every time you try to build yourself up by tearing someone else down, folks, you're not building yourself up at all. It just doesn't work. Paul, the guy who wrote over half the New Testament, considered one of Jesus's closest followers, said this. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with others. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, what's it say? They are not what? Wise. 
One of the biggest problems that many of us face is that we spend more time comparing ourselves to other people than we do connecting with God. And when we do that, we don't live the life that we were meant to live. Now, folks, I'm just telling you, it's natural to compare yourself. You compare yourself to people, what they have or what they don't have. We do that all the time. I remember talking to a friend one time, and he's like, Hey, man, I got a better car than you do. And then I thought to myself, dude, you live in a, a, a house that looks like a swamp meet. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden you start doing that. And you start, you know, I've got a nicer house, but, you know, you have a nicer car. Or they have athletic kids, but our kids are more academic. And it's so easy to start ranking yourself against other people. And none of us are immune to this. Just to be honest with you this morning, I occasionally have a struggle of comparing myself to other pastors. And when I do, folks, it's never pretty. I know I should simply be content. That's what Scripture says. To be content with what God has called me to do, but sometimes it's just not quite enough. Several years ago, the Star Press had a poll of Muncie Area's Finest. It was a Reader's Choice poll in which people would vote on who they thought were the finest, who was the finest at auto repair, and they would make a list of five or ten people. Who was best at heating and air conditioning? Five or ten people. What was the best restaurants? What were the best realtors? And they would go on and on and on. And one of the categories for Muncie's finest was the finest minister. There it is. And to my amazement, I was on the top ten list of all the ministers in the Muncie area. Now you would think, what an honor! I mean, there are like hundreds of ministers that are in the Muncie area. And you would think I'd be like, wow, you know, I'm so excited, I'm thrilled. But no, you know what I started thinking when this came out? I wondered, where do I rank in the top ten? Like, where am I at the top ten? And so, when I looked at the list, I thought, well, surely I must be number one because I'm the first one on the list. And then someone pulled me aside and they said, Chris, the reason you're the first on the list is because it's alphabetical order, you idiot. And you probably barely made tenth. you know, you probably know somebody that works at the Star Press that just put your name in it. You know, I'm so glad that person no longer attends the jar. But anyway, you know. And folks, this is what I want to just tell you this morning. These kinds of lists are not particularly useful. They actually make us worse. When we start to compare ourselves, we get competitive. And rather than seeing other people as a part of the team, that all of these, every minister should be on the list. We're all working for the same boss. But we have a tendency to want to be competitive When we start comparing ourselves to other people. But God's word spells out to us that we should not view people around us like that. 
In Galatians chapter 6, it says this. Each of you should test your own actions. Then you can take pride in yourself without, what's it say? Comparing yourself to somebody else. For each of you should carry your own load. Folks, you've got to guard against comparing yourself with others as much as possible. Just resist the comparison. Because it won't get you where you want to go. And you will never fulfill the purpose that God has for your life. Here's the second thing. I must renounce my own righteousness. So i got to resist comparison. And then secondly, I have to renounce my own righteousness. Again, in verse 12, Jesus depicts the Pharisee this way. He says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I got, of all I get. And what's fascinating with this is that uh, the Pharisee actually starts off the prayer like any prayer should be started off, but he ends it. With very much an unprayerful prayer. He begins a prayer like many of us should. God, I thank you. I mean, that's one of the best prayers that you can ever pray. Every single day. In fact, Scripture goes over and over and over and over again. This phrase is mentioned dozens and hundreds of times throughout Scripture. In different ways, but it's this. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. That we simply give thanks because He's good. In fact, if you want to change your attitude, if you want to change your whole world perspective, this week I challenge you to something. Before you go to bed at night, pull out a piece of paper or pull out a notebook and write down three things that you're thankful for in that day. It might be big things, it might be small things, it could be anything. But you write those three things down and you commit to doing that And from now until Easter. And I'm telling you, when Easter gets here, you'll be a totally different person when it comes to the area of gratitude. So the Pharisee begins the prayer well. He goes, God, I thank you. Great way to stop, to start a prayer. But the problem is he doesn't stop there. He keeps going on. And if he would have stopped, it would have been fine. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes on and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And what does he do? He turns this prayer of thanksgiving into a self-righteous boast. God, I'm so glad I'm not like that person. But look at me. This is what I do for you, God. And some of us might look and say, oh, I'd never. No, you pray like that. You have. You see, after you thank God, a second step really should be not what you've done, but what you have done to hurt God. Confession, our shortcomings. In fact, the Bible says this. If we confess, who sins? Whose? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Whose sins do we confess? Our sins. Not other people's sins. And we don't confess our own righteousness of saying how right we are. 
The Pharisee did both of these in this prayer. By trying to confess other people's sins and then confessing, God, but think about me. This is who I am. And the Pharisee exposed his sinful heart, which is what always happens. Folks, any time that you try to earn favor with God, and you base that on the hope and your own self-esteem of what you've done, your acts of righteousness... Every time that you do that and you think that I've got enough in my account to be made right in front of God, that check is going to bounce every single time. You will never have enough good deeds in your life to get the amount that's needed for righteousness from God. And why do I say this? Because it's me. Scripture says it. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The Pharisee, he's like, hey, I fast twice a week. That should be enough. It's not. Uh, Hey, I should get some brownie points. I tithe. I give 10% of my income away. Not enough. Now, both of those are good things. Both of those are things that we should do, but not out of sense of trying to get God's favor, but simply because of the grateful heart that we have for God. A giving heart filled with love. You see, folks, the central verse of, this, of all Scripture, you see it in end zones all the time, is not a Scripture that deals with righteousness. It's a Scripture that deals with God's love. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, for most of my life, as I read this Scripture, for the first part of it at least, when I would read this Scripture, I was like, oh, I know that God loves the world. I just wasn't sure that God loved Chris Bunch. I knew that Jesus forgave the sins of the world. I knew that he wiped away all the sins of the world. I just wasn't sure he took away my sins. I mean, I had flubbed up, messed up, screwed up in some significant ways, especially in college. And I thought that I had to climb a ladder to earn his love. I had to climb this ladder to earn his forgiveness for this pile of sin in my life. I had to fly straighter. I had to work harder. I had to think of ways to please God because I had offended Him. And I put myself through all this anguish to try to figure out, because we all do this, what is the quota? Like, what is the things that I have to do to be good enough? Do I have to pray so many times? Do I have to read the Bible? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to give money? What do I have to do so that I can be good enough to get Jesus' love and forgiveness in my life, to cover my stand? What is the standard? And it wasn't until I was 26 years of age that I finally realized that the key to a relationship with Jesus Christ is not based upon my own righteousness, but it's based upon His amazing Grace for me. So today I want to challenge you. 
Renounce your righteousness. Give up trying to impress God of how good you are. Because you, when you do that, you're like the Pharisee. So you resist comparison. You renounce your righteousness. And then, if you want to draw closer to God, folks, if you really want to draw closer to God, you turn and you rely on His grace. I must rely on grace. After Jesus kind of depicts this Pharisee as this righteous, self-righteous jerk, Jesus now turns the attention away from him and he turns it towards the tax collector. The despised tax collector. Did you notice how he worded it? He said the evildoers and the adulterers and, oh yeah, the tax like. Every sin's bad, but this is the worst of the worst. The tax collector, the reject. How does he come to the temple that day? And Jesus says this, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He did not even look up to heaven, but he, but he, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, the usual posture of prayer, so the posture of prayer in the synagogue, in the temple, at that particular time, was that a person would come and they would lift their head up to God, and they would raise their hands to Him. And this is the view that we give of the Pharisee. He raises his head, and he lifts up his hands. What does the Scripture say about the tax collector? He said he would not even look up. Rather than stretching out his hands to God, is the way they would pray, he beat his breast with his, with his head down. And you know what that's the sign of? Shame. Disgrace. I'm not worthy. And the tax collector is the polar opposite of what the Pharisee is when it comes to praying to God. And you remember his prayer? He simply says, God have mercy on me, uh, what? A sinner. You see, unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector is banking on mercy. He's not banking on his righteousness. He's banking on mercy. He's banking on grace. And the grace of God says this. It'll come up on the side screens. Let's read this out loud together. God's definition of grace. There's nothing, all of us, there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. God is love. He loves us no matter what. And His love is not based upon my works. In fact, in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, Not by works of righteousness, not by cleaning up my act, not by self-righteousness, not by my works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His what? Mercy, according to His grace, He saved us. 
The verse helps me understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of my sins and he took all of them on himself. And this is the cool thing. You ready for this? He did like all of this as a gift. It doesn't cost you anything. It's a free gift. Grace brings us God's great gift of acceptance. That when you have a relationship with God, it's not based upon what you do or what you don't do. It's based on the fact that He reached down from heaven to accept you 100% as is. No bringing up the past, no pointing the finger, no lecture, no hoop you've got to jump through. Just 100% radical acceptance. And so with this gift, the Bible says this. Let's read this out loud together. With this gift, the Bible says this. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Now here's the question. How did Christ accept you? How does he accept me? He accepts us unconditionally. No reservations, as is. Let me close by giving you a picture of what this looks like. A few years ago in southern Ohio, there was a high school football game between two teams. And one of the kids on the team was a boy by the name of Jake Porter. Jake has a disorder called chromosomal fragile X, which means his cognitive thinking is not very high. But he loves football. And all through his high school career, he was on the football team. He went to all the practices. He put on the pads. He uh, had the gear, but he never got into a game. He never got to play. And finally, the last game of his senior year, his coach decided that he wanted to get Jake into the game, but he didn't want him to get hurt. So he talked to the opposing coach, and he just asked him, if the score is really lopsided at the end of the game, would it be okay if we put Jake in for one play? We practice all year long having Jake take a handoff and just touching his knee to the ground. That way no one will hurt him, and it would be okay. And the other coach said, okay, that's fine. Well, five seconds to go in the game, Jake's team is down 42 to nothing. It's an ugly game. And so his coach calls a timeout, and he wants Jake to get into the game. And during the timeout, the other coach, like, walks onto the field and starts running across and all of a sudden, people are like, oh, maybe he's not going to do this. You know, I mean, 42 to nothing, you don't want anything to happen. For young kids, you know, you want to keep it to where they know, hey, we shut them out today. And the coach goes up to him and says, hey, coach, coach, coach. I just don't want him to get in the game 
I want him to score. And so the coach kind of looked at him and said, well, we haven't practiced that. I mean, the only thing that we practice is the knee thing. We haven't practiced the, the score thing. And the other coach said, well, you just give him the ball and we'll make sure that he gets to the end zone. So Jake goes back to the huddle and he gets everybody together and he goes, Jake, he said, big boy, that's what he called him, big boy, you're going to the house. And Jake starts jumping up and down and they're trying to just calm him down a little bit. And the quarterback calls the play, 84 ISO. And the ball is snapped and it's handed off to Jake. And what happens next will go down in Ohio high school football. Jake had practiced the entire week taking the knee. And he started to take the knee and he got down to almost two inches. And everyone's like, no, Jake, don't do that. And he got back up and he's like, what, what, what? And the team is like, go that way. And the coaches are on the sideline. Go that way. The opposing team saying, go that way. And Jake walks up toward the line and 21 players part like Moses going into the Red Sea. And Jake goes right through them to the promised land. He ran 49 yards. It took almost 12 seconds. And everybody on the sideline was running with him. And the bleachers exploded. And people were crying and they're hugging. Let's take a look. a lot of boys played in that game. And when they become old, they'll forget a lot of details about a lot of games. They'll forget about touchdowns that they scored. But none of them will forget the day that Jake Porter went to the big house. And that's the power of grace, folks. Grace says to someone, you belong here. You don't have to be any smarter. You don't have to be any stronger. You don't have to be any better than you are right now. That's grace. And so today you have a choice. You can choose the way of the Pharisee, banking on your own self-righteousness and pride, or you can choose the way of the tax collector, clinging to the fact that he just might show mercy 
hearts to you. You see, folks, none of us are justified in the eyes of God because of what we do or what we don't do. We are simply justified because of his amazing grace. So let me ask you this morning. Will you rely on grace rather than depending on your own good deeds? Will you rely on grace rather than looking at your past? Will you rely on grace rather than trying to control your marriage or control your family? Will you rely on grace rather than relying on worry about your kids? Will you rely on grace or rather will you turn to your own addiction? Will you choose to rely on grace or will you rely on yourself? I just want you to know that whatever you need, God's grace is sufficient for you. It's more than enough. It is an amazing gift to you. And so you've got the choice. All of us are the sinner marred in sin. And we get to choose the path of the Pharisee or the path of the tax collector.